Hey everyone, Tim K here. I know it's been a while since we've last spoken, but that's due to mostly my fault in making sure that this was a more streamlined process. As is often true with a project like this, the task is something I want to take extremely seriously, so time often slips through the cracks and we get behind on the work. I want to apologize for that because I know there are a lot of stories here that are being held up in the process of getting this right. That being said, we are moving on with new stories moving into 2023. Now that we've gotten through that awkward part, I want to talk to you about our relationship with the History Channel and our series of NFTs available currently on the History Channel website. There are four of these currently available, including Micah Fink, Major James Capers Jr., Josue Barone, and Kirsty Ennis. These NFTs are available for purchase on the History Channel website and have been co-signed by those particular veterans and are in limited release. So that means there are a limited number of NFTs available. Now, what's an NFT? I'm going to provide a link in the description because it's a little hard to explain that, and the History Channel does a much better job. Now, as to our podcast with Texas Public Radio and NPR out of uniform, Season 1 is available on all platforms, and we will also provide a link to that. It's an incredibly well-done podcast, thanks to our team of award-winning producers, and I'm sure you'll love every gripping second. There are six episodes available, including Donald McAllister, Destiny Flynn Dreyer, Trinidad Garcia, Josue Barone, and a two-parter on Medal of Honor recipient Kyle Carpenter. Once again, the links will be made available in the description. And thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. We want to honor these memories correctly, and we believe we did that in Out of Uniform. And I hope we continue to do so with the Veterans Project podcast. Just a quick disclaimer before we begin. This podcast was recorded not too long after the book was released. So any discrepancies you hear in times and dates between now and then is due to that. As with the work, this is a legacy project. So sometimes it takes some time to get it out there. But we think you'll be pleased with the end result. In fact, we know you will because Michelle's words are so powerful. What can possibly be said to fill the space of an almost unfathomable loss? How do we fight through that? Go on living when the glue that held us together is no longer. I've long pondered the question, how? How do these incredible men and women move on with life after the one they love the most makes the ultimate sacrifice? Oftentimes thousands of miles from home in some country most probably couldn't even point to on a map. It's not that I don't know where my own source of strength is, that being the Lord God. It's more that I don't know that kind of pain. I haven't lost a spouse. I haven't lost a blood brother or blood sister. And almost like our greatest generation storming the beaches of Normandy, I would never be so egotistical as to assume I could do what they did. At least I hope I wouldn't. Yet I see a woman like Michelle Black who lost her husband, Brian, and may we honor his memory in perpetuity, to a place even fewer know about than Afghanistan or Iraq, Africa. Maybe a light bulb just went off in your head when you heard that. You might have seen this story, heard the whispers, 
Rumors of incompetence from the team standpoint. Special Forces soldiers acting like a bunch of cowboys, just doing whatever they wanted. But was that actually the case? What were they doing there? Africa. Why was the Special Forces team in Africa, you might ask? And then you delve further into the story. And your next question might be, why were they so isolated? How did a situation like that even happen in the middle of a terrorist hotbed where these men found themselves surrounded and outgunned? I can't answer these questions, but Michelle can. She lived it through her loss of Brian and the cancerous thoughts that plagued her heart, mind, and soul after his death. She asked the questions, but she wasn't getting the answers. She was lied to, deceived, left to her own devices. Now, some would have certainly thrown in the proverbial towel at this point and just started their grieving process, and understandably so, resigned to the fact that the government just makes mistakes from time to time. But not Michelle Black. She became a force to be reckoned with, opening her own informal investigation into the deaths of the men who sacrificed their very lives for each other. But to what end did they make that sacrifice? How did this even happen? Michelle was on a mission, and she wouldn't be stopped. She'd lost the man she loved the most in a horrific way. How does one get those answers? How does one move past the monolithic machine of the United States Army and shake things up in a way that could cause true change so that another tragedy like this could be prevented for others? Sacrifice. So that others would not suffer the same terror. That was Michelle's next move. And appropriately, the title of her tell-all book. The perspective of the men who were on the ground that day. That's what was needed. And so that's what she got. She listened to the men who were actually there. And from that, she was able to piece together the truth of what really happened on the ground that fateful day. And the days before it. When this podcast ends, be sure to pick up a copy of that book, Sacrifice. I don't even care if you pause it right now and buy the book. It's that important. I've said more than enough, though. Here she is with an education on true sacrifice and what that really means. The one and only Michelle Black. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. I'm out here in beautiful... I'm not going to pronounce this town's name. (laughs) (laughs) That's my strategy here, Michelle Black. I'm not going to pronounce... How do you pronounce it? I pronounce it Puyallup. That's wrong. But people... I know... Well, it is. Ask anyone who lives here locally. I'm not from here. They're like, it's Puyallup. And you're like, Whoa. That's like 25 syllables. <laughs> yeah, I just correct them. <laughs> yeah, I just I just say near Tacoma. Yeah, that is the better way to go. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Well, everyone, Michelle, uh just incredibly harrowing story, uh, but good friend of mine. Uh I met you a few years back 
and it was a massive, huge honor. We were out in Wyoming uh, as part of Operation Artemis's deal, Seth and Lindsay Wheeler. Um, incredible organization that brought together Gold Star families of special operations veterans. But you had undergone a very recent loss, and I could see it in your eyes. I saw the pain. Um, I told Blake, our president, I said, oh, she's hurting. It was like a gut punch for me because I'd been around other Gold Star wives, dads, but they were all 10 years out, you know, so it was just a little different. You were so close. It had been eight months uh, since you lost Brian Black on that fateful day in Niger. Um, I remember that very well. And I'll always remember that because it was like a gut punch of sacrifice in realizing and seeing the faces of you and your boys and realizing how much you'd given to this nation because it was really recently apparent. Obviously, we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about the sacrifice elements and and what brought you there uh, to that moment. But let's start off with a little bit of the happy stuff first. (laughs) Let's bring you to the pain. (laughs) And then, you know, let's go back and talk about your life and really what brought you um, into meeting Brian. But but what what brought you to a place of marrying a special operations veteran? He wasn't special operations at first, but what what brought you um, to to Brian and and can kind of talk about your life early growing up in California? Yeah, I um, was actually born in a ski town. Um, my whole family history are everybody owned their own businesses. So a bunch of small business owners, my grandpa, my dad, um, and just busy, hardworking, dedicated people. Um, gosh, we lived. You um, surrounded by hard workers? I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding, everybody. Michelle, everybody's like, "We'll kill you, Tim. Don't insult a gold star wife." (laughs) No, I'm being serious. You are one of the hardest working people I've met, and that culture really helped shape you, didn't it? Yeah, I was raised. You know, you get up when the sun comes up, and you go down when it goes down because if you don't go down when it goes down you can't get up when it gets up and you got a list so um yeah we we lived in the ski town till i was about seven and then we moved down to more of a country town in in uh, california called tehachapi and uh, my dad owned auto body businesses so you know i'd be in there on the weekends cleaning the bathrooms for him we'd be up early we lived out on acreage so it was lambs with the ffa it was you know um always something Mm -hmm. so but we we lived with the idea of work hard play hard Mm -hmm. so we also did everything i mean my dad was way into sports so and he was a private pilot so we had access to a lot and as he began making more money in his business it was one weekend we're out digging post holes because the next weekend we're flying down to the beach and hopping on our um, boat and sailing out to the Anacapa Islands off the coast of Santa Barbara and spending the weekend surfing and, you know, swimming. That's cool. Yeah. And it was stuff like, you know, we're going to dive in off the boat and swim to shore and then, you know, come hike all over the islands and explore them and then get picked up later by one of my brothers in the dinghy or something, you know. 
Your so, pops was a big surfer. Did you surf with him? I didn't surf with him. I wasn't interested. It was like, no, thank you. That water's cold. <laughs> but, you got on, but you got on a <laughs> snowboard. Well, I was one of those kids. If I wanted to do it, you know, nothing would stop me. If yeah. I wasn't interested, no one could make me. Gotcha. So, yeah, everyone, Michelle, surf, Michelle, surf. And I'm like, listen, I'll be on the beach getting yeah. some, getting a tan, sleeping, you know, don't bother me. Surfing's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. And yeah. it's, in California, I mean, that water's not warm. So mm-hmm. I was like, why would I bother? That's no good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I like your strategy. I understand it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the older I got, teenage girl, it's like, Psh, there's boys on that beach. You know, I'm not going to be on the water. Yeah. Like, why I waste hear my you. time out I here? Hear you. There was a strategy you know? there. There was always a strategy. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> what, what, what was it about your father that you remember the most? Um, that that hard work ethic obviously instilled upon you um and you know how how was your relationship with your parents in that way oh man we you know it was really tight i was definitely a daddy's girl for sure my mm-hmm. poor mom it was like whatever lady you know going <laughs> with this guy <laughs> everything it always you say happens is stupid. to one of the parents you yeah. know he's yeah he's smart you're dumb <laughs> don't know why he married you but um <laughs> That was pretty much my attitude. Yeah, I get but, it. But you know, I I adored them. They they were hardworking. You know, my mom. I always say she was like Martha Stewart on crack. That woman was always up on a ladder. You know, mm-hmm. just painting or whatever. I mean, she'd get into a project and she'd be up twenty four seven making me like exactly what I wanted to wear for a costume for Halloween. She could. She was an incredible seamstress. Mm, my um, mom too. That's awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. It's a dying art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, died out in our family. I'm no good. My sister's <laughs> great, though. So, you know. Somebody good. carried on the legacy. Somebody carried it on. Yeah. I was like, no, thank you. But <laughs> <laughs> That's like a, a lot of work. It is. Yeah. My mom incredible. made all her clothes when we were kids. And I was always like, I have no idea how you do this lady. But also, I never appreciated it. I always wanted store-bought clothes. Yeah. I was like, what the? And then now I look back and I'm like, that was the coolest thing in the world that she like made our clothes. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It totally is. It's like a miracle if I sew on a button these days, you know? <laughs> but I need something done. I call my sister. I'm like, hey, can you, you know, fix these jeans? I'll ship them to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So a lot of resourcefulness, a lot of hard work in that family, waking mm-hmm. up at sunrise, going to bed when the sun sets so that you could wake up and make it another day. Yeah. And, you know, we were raised with just this, like... You know, the different sayings my dad would say, you know, that there was work hard, play hard. But, you know, he'd get out of his plane someday and we'd do something crazy. You know, he'd go buzz a friend or whatever and he'd get out of his plane and always like cheated death and lived to tell about it again. <laughs> you know, just and that was kind of the attitude. Just, you know, I mean, you played hard and it was adrenaline. Like we were all adrenaline junkies. So we'd go out to the lake and everyone's cliff jumping and, you know, wakeboarding and, you know, snowboarding, we're up dropping off, you know, dropping off the top into the cliffs or hiking up in the moonlight and going down chutes, you know, it just, yeah. Was it that sense of adventure that attracted you to Brian when you first met him? And talk about, talk about that, talk about meeting him and what that was like. Yeah. You know, it was complicated. I always felt like I knew exactly what I was looking for and I'd know it when I saw it. And, um, oddly enough, we ended up not agreeing that he was the right guy for me. He had to talk me into him, but, um, <laughs> but we, you that's know, the beginning of a lot of good love stories for sure. Yeah. yeah he was very convincing, fortunately. Um, but you know, I liked 
like the strong natural leader type because that's how my dad was and honestly my grandpa was also that way and I was his favorite so um so I recognized that instantly in him and that was that was awesome you know so I think that drew me to him without me realizing it you know and by the time you know he argued with me over why I should date him I was just like all right this guy's you know, I'm yeah. going. I'm going with this guy. Plus, he was always, everything was an adventure with him, and I thought I'm never going to be bored. Like I'm gonna, you know, hang on to the edge of your seat here. You know, mm-hmm. you you've got an incredible book out right now. I'm actually in the middle of reading it, but it's it's so good so far. Survivor, and I was reading those. You know, I was reading those first meetings about those first meetings with Brian, and you know, him saying, "No, yeah, you're my girlfriend." And you're like, no, I'm not. I didn't agree to this. He's like, no, I mean, we hang out all the time. We're always around each other. We always run away from the rest of the crowd. And we always go do our thing. You're my girlfriend. You're like, and he didn't get frustrated when you told him that you you weren't. He just laughed at you. Yeah, I was super rude to him. I was like, yeah, like, good luck. And you're not my type, like, not attracted to you, like, whatever, like, we're friends, mm-hmm. nothing more. And he just was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> of course we're dating. Like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like, he was sure we were it. So he, like, I don't know if I could have gotten him to go away. Yeah. Um. So I finally was like, well, guess we'll just go with this then. <laughs> <laughs> he's not leaving and he's too scary for anyone else to want to show up if he's hanging around. So. <laughs> I love that. What was it that first, so, you know, we, we joke around and everything, but what was it that first attracted you to him really? And, and you felt like this could be the guy or, or this is the guy for me. He was just incredibly humble. Mm. And unexpected in ways that I'd never met anyone like him. He He's sitting down with me crocheting, and I'm finding out as we're crocheting, he's letting me teach him to do, like, a girl art. You know, we're knitting together. And um, I'm finding out that he used to be a chess champion, you know, like <laughs> everyone in you know, the Puyallup, Tacoma, whatever, Washington area knew him because he would go out at, you know, eight years old and beat grown men at chess. He was a national chess champion. He was insane. Wow. And, but he was unbelievably humble. He just wouldn't really talk about it, you know? Mm. So he was somebody who was extremely understated. You know, I go to watch him. He's over, well, he played poker for a living. So I go over to his roommate's house one day and uh, he's got open four tables of poker and four tables of speed chest chess. And he's just going click, 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 Jeez. click, click. I mean, from one to the other, just like that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And Joe, his roommate goes, yeah, I just went in there and asked him what he was doing. And all he said was winning. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the other thing. Brian was like known for his one liners, like, and they were incredibly witty. So you'd say something and in a minute, he'd just, you know, let you know he definitely uh, was the smartest guy, you know. But if you asked him, he would always tell me there's always somebody in the room smarter than you. Mm. So um, and I think that always surprised me because to me, he was always the smartest person I'd ever met. Yeah. Um, But he didn't see himself that way. Mm. 
Yeah, that's incredible. So, so how long did y'all date before you married? Gosh, we um, well, let's see. He told me we were dating sometime around <laughs> July. We'll call that the <laughs> official date. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when it was like technically fine. Um, and then we got engaged in December, and we would have gotten married right away. But my mom wanted to typical mom wants to plan this fancy wedding, and mm-hmm. her date was July. You know, so we had to wait a full year. Um, so to- in total about a year. Wow. Yeah. You, you saw some things early on though, when you guys were dating about his resilience, uh, there's a particular passage or area in the book where you talk about a hike and you guys going on that hike. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just maybe it's that, or maybe it's another story about his resilience and what you saw in him that just turned every situation into a good one, no matter what. Right. Cause that's how he was. Oh, yeah, he totally was. I mean, we were, yeah, there was one time we were out on a hike, and um, we had this big plan, you know, we're going to do 30 miles round trip um, up into the high Sierra, so we take off, um, and we're already, I think we're starting now off at about 9,500 foot elevation. Oh, and wow. we're so gonna, already high up there. Yeah. Like I think the town sat at around 9,000 and we drove up to some lakes and started out the lakes and then we're going to do a 30 mile hike. And most of the first part of it's just pretty much straight uphill. Um, we're doing this pass up over, um, uh, gosh, we're going to go up, cross over the Pacific Crest Trail and drop down into Red's Meadows. Um, and so, we get up there and if you're covering 30 miles and it's this type of terrain, it's just, it's gnarly because we, you know, three days. So we leave at night with our headlamps on and, um, we, we get up, um, the first day we're good. Second day, we finally get to where we're about to hit our descent and my boots break down along the spine and just, I mean, you know, hitting the Achilles tendon and by then we're in the valley floor and we were supposed to, by that day, we were supposed to, we were heading for some hot springs. So we were supposed to cover about, I think, 15 miles that day. And we'd only covered a few the day before. So we weren't able to do it because my boots broke down on the spine and then we're stuck on the valley floor and we have to make the full trek back. And I think by then we had at least like 10 miles to backtrack. Oh boy. And so, yeah, and the thousand foot descent, now we've got to go back up. So he full on just sits me down, um, has me put my foot in the water. He's like setting up camp, making break, you know, making food. Like, I mean, full on just taking care of me, you know? And then, um, the next morning we get up and it's like, he pulls the boots apart, fashions like a, like we take like a flip flop. Basically we take the insole out of the boot stick the um, shoelaces through, make a flip-flop of sorts, tie it onto my shoe. He pulls out a ridiculous amount of socks that he packed, apparently. I have no <laughs> idea why. And we pull, He was like, already prepared for the army. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They a lot probably, of socks. They were probably green, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I pull them all up, and they're all these knee socks, you know? So I pull all these socks on, and then we proceed to turn around and hike the full way back the next day. And, uh, yeah, that improvised shoe did the trick so made it all the way back out it was amazing wow. so what a what a guy mm-hmm. what do you what do you remember about your wedding day gosh mm-hmm. everything it's funny someone had told me right before it take in everything 
because if you let it pass too quick, you'll forget everything. You won't remember any of it. So I remember everything. I remember staring at people as we walked down the aisle. But what was amazing was this thunderstorm was moving in. We got married on my parents' property and they, you know, they're on 20 acres, but they're out in like, there's all sorts of acreage all around them. I mean, they're really out in the country. And we see this huge storm moving in as I'm walking down the aisle. And I mean, everything's just blowing, you know, and we're outside under all of it. And I'm just thinking this is not going to go well, Mm -hmm. you know. And um, as I get right to the front, I'm handed off to the pastor. There's like this clap of thunder and a flash of lightning. And the pastor says, you know, let's pray. And we bow our heads as water's starting to like hit our faces. Mm -hmm. And then... The minute he prays, everything just like calms down, settles, and the storm stops at wow. the edge of the property and a rainbow comes out. Wow. And yeah, it was incredible. His grandpa actually, his grandpa was an atheist and he later told us that he wanted to run inside and hide after that prayer. He was sure he was going to get like, you know, struck <laughs> down. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. So funny. But um, yeah, so we finish and, you know, there's rainbow there's like you know white horses you know grazing in the field i mean it was incredible so yeah it was a great day sounds like a special great so you remember some special moments with him on that day yeah i mean you know you're up taking the pictures and what honestly i think with any wedding like that you're just hanging out because you're waiting for everybody to you know you're you're checking the boxes so you can get the heck out of there yeah. you know everyone yep. else is there for the party and the good time that's not really for you yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like we said the vows we're out of here yeah so um yeah did you guys go off on a honeymoon after that or? yeah we yeah. did we went yeah. over to Kauai, which was great oh, you know awesome. yeah I did some snorkeling that. and that's great yeah do you have fun out there Oh yeah, yeah, you know, had our first fight. It was great. <laughs> and just for the Gotta record, get it out of the way since he's not here, I was mm-hmm. right. Okay, yeah. you're right. <laughs> I don't even need to know what it's about. I trust no, you. No, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. What uh, in the accompanying days after, and you know, years, you guys had kids. How much longer after that? You know, after you guys got married, did you have kids? Oh, Zeke and Isaac. Pretty much right away. Um. I got pregnant with Zeke probably like a month after we got married. So I was like, well, I guess we're diving in here with this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Zeke was wild. He um, he was on the autism spectrum and he was a handful. He did not sleep. He screamed. I mean, it was overwhelming. And um, because of that, Brian and I sat down, you know, our original plan was, you know, we're going to have three kids. And... um. We sat down one day after having Zeke, I think about about a year in, and we just go, listen, we either end this now, this suffering, like, and, and like, he's our only kid, but mm-hmm. then he might be this bad forever because, you know, he doesn't have anybody else to kind of, you know, because he'll become self-centered and it'll be all about him. But we were thinking like, hey, if we give him another sibling, then he'll, you know, he'll have somebody to bounce stuff off of. He can learn some lessons and not be as self-focused. And cause we didn't know he was such a handful, but all we knew is we do not want more of these. Yeah. So what happens if we have another and he turns out like this nuts 
<laughs> so it seemed like this huge risk to us. Yeah. Like, um, You're weighing your options at that point. Yeah, like, like this could go really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. So a year, um, when Zeke was about a year old, we decided, all right, we're just going to toss a coin and, and see how it goes, have one more. Mm-hmm. So we have one more, and, you know, we have Isaac, and Isaac's like the best kid ever. It's like he pukes and then, like, giggles and just is moving on with life, you know? <laughs> it's totally happy. Yeah. So um, that was good because uh, we found out later Zeke was on the spectrum. He's autistic, and, I mean, it, everything was a struggle, you know? Did, did you two learn a lot about each other through that, through raising Zeke? Yeah. Yeah. We did, you know, and... And I think having a kid, um, it's so hard. It's it's like a whole different type of grief to have a kid who is not, I mean, I wouldn't say not perfect because no kid's perfect, <laughs> but not typical. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have a kid and you expect when you have a child that you get to dream about their future and you're so, you know, like, oh, they're going to be a baseball player. They're going to play football. They're going to do, they're going to be rad, you know. And then you have this kid and you're like, wow like is he gonna ever live away from home like it's the most heartbreaking thing and it really is a a thing of grief you go through because it's just it's almost like it just breaks you you know it really does um society doesn't prepare you for that nothing in life prepares you for that everyone expects they're going to have kids who are you know just normal average kids yeah you don't expect or maybe you know you you are in your mind oh they're going to be above average you never prepare yourself to have a kid who might not be you know cookie cutter or, yeah you know they don't totally the... what, what, what did you see about brian in those moments of learning and you know and how he handled zeke in in raising him what what did you see in him you know was it tough on him was this tough on him as it was you oh yeah i would say it was tougher it, i think it's a lot harder for men when their kids are not when they're born and there's that much struggle especially when it's their sons i think that's so hard for men and so i think it you know i recognized that pretty quick how much harder it was for him yeah um, and it was easier for me to deal with the craziness sometimes than it was him because I think it just, you know, I think it was heartbreaking and, and it makes you feel like a failure as a parent. Yeah. And I think, you know, for him, that's what it was. Like, I'm just a bad parent mm. and other people will tell you that too. You will have people tell you to your face, you're doing it wrong. You're failing. And that's why he's this way. Mm. And you get a lot of that. It's surprise. It's, it's incredible. And you believe it when you're a first time parent and he's the only kid you've really been around. It's, it's, we're failing. Yeah. And this is because of us. This is something we're doing wrong. And we tried everything. And it was weird when we finally got him diagnosed, he was diagnosed much later. And it was this weird sense of like, I mean, it It was really painful to finally hear the words, he has autism. He's never going to, you know, be normal. He's never going to go to college. He's never going to live outside the house. But it was this incredible relief. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't, I'm not the one causing this. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's tough, unbelievably tough. And I know, you know, first time parents having that happen could be unbelievably difficult, as you said it was. So going back to Brian in in your in your marriage, your love, 
Brian was a professional poker player. He's playing online. He mm. probably thinks that's going to go on. That's going to be the thing that he does, right? And <laughs> keep doing it. But he got a little bit of a surprise. You guys got a little bit of a surprise, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 2008 hits and, you know, internet gambling restrictions tighten um, under Obama. And it was like, well, now it's not really safe to keep our money in the accounts that are necessary to do the online gaming. Yeah. So now we're not making any money. Um, and Brian, you know, he had a degree, but he'd never used it. So now, again, we're in the, you know, financial crisis of 2008. And he can't play poker anymore either. And he can't get a job because he's never had a job with his career. So he has no experience. But he's overqualified, you know, the typical overqualified, underqualified thing. Right. He's overqualified for, you know, Burger King or, you know, working in warehouses or driving trucks. But he's underqualified to work on- with his degree. So it- we were just stuck. Yeah. And uh, he'd always wanted to be some sort of special operations. So one day he just just asked me he's like hey what do you think about this and i mean i'm like yeah absolutely do it because at that point you know like we need to find some way out yeah clearly we need insurance we've got a kid on the spectrum and but that but um, this took a little bit of faith right because you you hadn't been a military type of person you hadn't been somebody who'd been around military even no i'd never been exposed to military period like my um upbringing there there was no military exposure at all in my family like if anything there was a little bit of a negative view of military like oh you know they all just take orders you know and but then i met brian's dad and he was a marine and i you know just loved his dad he's a great guy and so you know my my view of it was changing and i could see how much it meant to brian and you know there's you know, you always hear this like, oh, happy, happy wife, happy life. But that's that's such a lie. <laughs> you know, it, it goes both ways. Yeah. And when it came right down to it, like I'm busy with kids and, you know, I did better dealing with Zeke than Brian did. So why did he need to be there? And if this was a passion of his and something he wanted to do for me, it was like happy Brian, happy life. Like he needs to go take a break, go do his thing for a couple of years. And then, you know, like. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So he joined the United States Army uh, and he joined as a medic, right? Right. Did he want to be a special operations medic right away? Was that the goal Um, or was it just special operations, period? He had joined the Army. Obviously, he went to the 68 Whiskey School in San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston, Mm -hmm. uh, which I know very well. I left from MEPS there. Uh, what, what, What about, what was the decision to become a medic? Well, he just, he's, he was always interested in medicine. So for him initially, he's like, this is just a great, I'm going to enroll or enlist and then go from there. And so, um, when that position was open, he was excited. He's like, yeah, let's just, I'm going to dive in there and, um, go forward from there. And what year was this? That was 2009. Okay. So he joined as a medic. You guys get sent to Colorado Springs, right? Yes. Fort Carson. Yep. And how long were you all there for? 
We were there about 18 months. Okay. Did you enjoy that time? Did he enjoy that time? <laughs> oh, yeah. Colorado Springs was incredible. So, I mean, we were dealing with a lot um, with Zeke having just been diagnosed. And, and, I mean, he was having 10 hours of therapy a week and learning to speak. And he was in special education classrooms. And Brian, you know, was really busy with work. But we did find time to do, like, I mean, the skiing is incredible there. The hiking is incredible. So we were always out when we had free time, like, hey, let's shoot over to the Garden of the Gods and let's go on a jog or, you know, let's hike. Um, what is There's that, the incline, you know, so we do that on date nights. Like, let's go run up the, like, race each other up the incline and then, you know, cruise down and grab burgers and a beer. So, I mean, that's what we were always doing, you know, mm-hmm. dragging the kids on hikes. It was fun. But, um yeah, then Brian's like, I want to go to SFAS, and that turned into a whole nother thing because the training was just grueling. He was training to be, you know, go to go through SFAS, so he just was never home once he started training for that. Yeah, and he, that was obviously for Bragg, so you guys moved across the country, or did you stay in Colorado Springs? Oh, well, I mean, for SFAS, he, he you know, he did his preparation is what I mean by training. So he did his, his training and preparing for SFAS. And then once he went to SFAS and was accepted, then we, um, we moved to Fort Bragg. Yeah. What was that move like for you? Uh, and how was it out in Fayetteville? Well, um, <laughs> Fayetteville's Fayetteville, you know, yeah, it'll yeah. always be Fayetteville. Um, <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Vietnam. Everybody knows what I'm talking about this listening right now. Oh, yeah. Or most of you, <laughs> especially <laughs> special operations guys. Yeah. yeah. It was not Colorado Springs. No, no, it uh, definitely wasn't. But we were excited because we bought our first house. You know, we could actually afford a house in Fayetteville because, you know. <laughs> Hard to afford one in Colorado Springs. Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. There's a big difference when you move from the West Coast to the South. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were able to have our first house. So I was super excited about that. But um, definitely a shock after growing up in California, West Coast girl to like all of a sudden be in Fayetteville. That was like, whoa, this is a different country. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how it felt. Um, so that was a whole learning curve, you know. I made the smart decision to put my kids in public school initially there. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) no sarcasm at all. No, you know, pulled my son out and he had like, you know, tattoos and stuff. It was nuts. (laughs) Face tattoos. Second grade. And I was like, where'd you get that? In the bathroom. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) where'd that meth come from, son? (laughs) Yeah. So we moved them into a, um, Gosh, what was it? A charter school. And that, you know, that went fairly well for the first couple of years. You know, that was a slow downhill you, slide. But what do you remember about uh, Brian going through SFAS? Did he did he struggle or did you know, I mean, obviously, it's a struggle for everybody. That's a very extremely, you know, tough program uh, selection. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about him going through that? You know, because I wasn't there during SFAS, um, I don't know, because he was just gone for like, what, two or three months, no, two months, and then came back. And I didn't speak to him while he was there. So all I know is it was like, I'll be back in, you know, however many days or I won't. Yeah, Or, you know, I will either way, but I will call you and let you know if I failed or if I made it. So, you know, and so for me, because I think I was so wrapped up with what was going on with Ezekiel. Um, and all the autism stuff, that was all kind of a blur for me. Um, but I, I, I think he said it was tough, but Brian always had that, 
I mean, typical for the guys who make it through these things. I mean, it's like you, he would rather you kill him before he quit. So yeah. it was never a question of whether or not he'd make it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never thought like, oh, he'll call me and he didn't make it unless he broke something. Yeah. You know. And so then he goes through the Q course and that takes some time, right? Oh, yeah. That yeah. took all sorts of time. He even got injured in the middle of it and had to have a surgery and then, go. you know, so he got a little delayed. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, and then he makes it through, and then he goes through medical training. Right. And that's even tougher in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. He loved that, though. Did he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like, you know, we're this doing... This is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, we're doing cadavers today. I'm going to go with a chainsaw this weekend. And I'm just like, oh, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. Like, mm. but... Just make it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want the details about what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes you a perfect Special Forces wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please leave me the in the dark. Don't tell me. <laughs> yeah. 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 So he makes it through. He makes his medic. How proud were you of him? Oh, yeah. That was Bray. awesome. Yeah. I was, you know, and I think more than anything, more than pride, it was just like really happy for him because he finally got what he wanted. Mm. And that was great, you know, because it wasn't necessarily about me and how I felt. It was something he wanted. And since it was so important to him, I was so excited for him because I'm like, great. Now he gets to go out and do what he wants to do, you know? He gets to have his axe on his, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. And he gets to, you know, have all his cool weapons and be out with his guys and do whatever it is that he does. Yeah. So. What was it like coming into the teams and meeting some of the guys and the wives? And was, was that was that pretty cool to see the camaraderie? Yeah, I loved it. You know, the wives were incredible people. They were just so friendly um it was just an easy fit yeah. you know they all seemed to just click and everybody seemed very similar like just very like-minded mm -hmm. and so that was great That's you know awesome. yeah so so when he gets to his unit uh and you know he's with third group um what what was the cycle like from there did he deploy pretty soon after oh instantly yeah, yeah. He, afghanistan or, or yeah he went yeah. to afghanistan um I'm thinking in August and uh, he was gone for, gosh, he was about, he was gone about three months, got home and instantly left for um, ranger school. Okay. And so then of course we didn't speak until he got back from ranger school um, or right before he graduated when he's like, Hey, I'm graduating. You can come visit me. So, um, in fact, he went to ranger, uh, ranger school so quick that I didn't even get on the forums where you speak and find out what's going on for people <laughs> who are in the course. Yeah. So I found out later that there was like a visitation date where, and you could send packages and he got left out of all of that. Cause I wasn't in communication with anyone because he got back and instantly went. Oh, geez. So, um, he called me later and was like, there's a forum where you can like find out information. Cause like. Basically, I'm, I haven't been getting my box of food Is was really the issue. He had his list of food he wanted and he couldn't relay it to me and he was hungry. Yeah. He, you yeah. know, whatever with the talk. Mm -hmm. He wanted his food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I still have the list of food that he made at that, at that school. It was like, you know, fudge <laughs> and a very specific fudge. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, whatever with the talk, but he... Oops. Did, so so when you saw him again after that first deployment was a little different did you notice any changes in him um well not really because 
that deployment, the first one to Afghanistan, he was on a B team. So they weren't out doing missions really mm-hmm. um, at all. Yeah. So he was mostly just doing sport and sticking back at base. Okay. Um, but I know he was really excited because he'd talked to some other guys who did more special, you know, technical stuff. And, and, and they'd pulled him aside like, hey, maybe think about our teams, check out our teams in the future. And he was really getting amped up. He wanted to get involved in some other stuff. But um, that was kind of his first introductory, you know, uh, deployment. He was getting more and more excited as he did that. So, um, yeah, he came back from that, went to ranger school and graduated April 1st from ranger school. I picked him up. Um, We headed back and he instantly got pulled on to ODA 3212, um, the A-team at third group. And he... Deployed May 15th, so he was gone, like, almost exactly a month later um, to Niger Okay. in 2016. Okay. And what do you, what do you remember about that, that, about that deployment, about him leaving for that deployment? Well, one huge thing, he had decided to go with uh, cheap phones. He bought an Alcatel, which he was obsessed with, <laughs> and it didn't work in Africa, so oh, I didn't speak to him for... <laughs> Like the first two months. Oh boy. Um, so he ended up calling me from the David Johnson's phone because mm. the David was on that, um, that trip. So one of the, the mechanic, the support mechanic on their team and him had become friends and he started calling me from the David's phone. And I tried to call back a few times and the David picked up and I'm like, wait a minute, who am I talking to? And he's like, this is David, your husband borrowed my phone. I'm like, Oh, okay. Couldn't figure <laughs> it out. You know? So, um, there was that big communication issues that time around. So I only talked to him a couple times during that deployment, but it was like, all right, whatever. He's out there having a nice time. They were out in Marathi that there wasn't much th- the threat level there was really low. Um, they were just mostly doing training missions, you know, nothing serious, little patrols and stuff to train their Nigerian counterparts. But yeah, that was about it. Did he enjoy that? Did he enjoy being out there in Africa? Oh yeah. Are yeah. you kidding me? He loved getting out there. He was um, learning Hausa then and, uh, which was, you know, one of the local dialects and he was, um, he knew, uh, he spoke modern Saturn air MSA modern standard standard Arabic. So mm. he was having fun getting to use that, you know, and he came home with all sorts of stories, you know, his favorite was they're out one night with their nods on and he was some, you know, their, their main goal was to prevent, um, cattle thieves. That was the big, the big thing out there. Yeah. So they were, they saw this guy coming on a camel and Brian's like, you know, we're all hiding in the bushes watching this guy. We think he's a cattle thief. And we realize he's not. He's just some random Arab dude on a, you know, on on a camel in the desert. So Brian stands up and his nods and speaks to the guy in Arabic and says, you know, however you say it, shalom, whatever. You know, alaykum. Yeah. <laughs> alaykum, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he comes like come in peace and he said the guy's eyes just went super wide (laughs) (laughs) was not expecting to see that in the nighttime yeah but i was like when i stand up in my nods i must have looked like an alien i'm just this giant american alien dude like speaking (laughs) to him in his language you know he thought that was the best thing Uh, how long was he back before he hit that next appointment um gosh he got back october 31st uh, 2016. And then that year was a lot of training. They left for Jade Helm for about three months. Um, 
didn't think it was that long. And then they left in August for their 2017 deployment. What's crazy as I think about that is uh, Mick and Joanne Stevens, my really good friends um, who lost their son in Afghanistan in 2011, uh, Riley Stevens, the, they they were supporting a lot of the third group guys as Jade Helm you know, happened. So a lot of the guys just stayed on their uh, lawn because <laughs> they weren't supposed to go into the house, you know? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I don't even know if I should be talking about this. I might get a special visit. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, they were supporting a lot of the guys from third group uh, who coming through because they were still all real tight with making Joanne because everybody knew Riley. Uh, but yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder if he might have run into them or something. Who knows? Oh yeah, it would surprise me. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember him telling me all sorts of stories and buying hats along the way and different stuff. That's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> were, were those months, uh, in, you know, leading up to that next appointment? Do you do you remember anything uh, about spending that time with him and, and before he took off for his next trip? Yeah, I mean, we were sitting around. It's funny because he was already like, ah, oh, you know, I thought we were going to have more freedom with Green Berets. Where there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of just stuff that I was hoping. You know, I think typical, you know, Green Beret, like you just want to run your show. You want to do your thing. You don't want to like be bogged down by all the rules and all of the bureaucracy. bureaucracy right. Yeah. And so he was kind of like disenchanted with that already. And he's like, do I go into another secret thing, try and, and find another way that I can do this job without being so bogged down by that? But I don't think there's really a way to do it. So he was getting frustrated. And he's like, should I do a few more years? Should I get out? Because his uh, time was coming up that April. He had to decide, like, do I stay on and, you know, sign back on? Or do I just get out now? Mm -hmm. And so we were having this conversation in January. And I was, you know, thinking about it. And I said, well, if you could do anything in the world like anything, what would make you really happy? Like mm -hmm. what would be the best thing to happen to you? And he goes, oh, I would love to create a trading algorithm, like a stock trading algorithm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, like do it. Why don't you just do it? Because if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? You're going to wait till like the opportunity pops up, what, 10, 20 years down the road and it's passed you by? Like just why not? You did know? he do it? Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course he did. <laughs> yeah, so pretty much from then on out, it's like every day he's on the couch, he's got his new supercomputer, and he's just like, you know, and he's reading Python, which was the best thing to hear him so angry up in the office yelling because he can't get Python to work for him, but he's trying to teach himself, you know? Yeah. So funny. <laughs> so he's up there with his, you know, Python for Dummies book, and he's reading it cover to cover, and, you know... <laughs> 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 so great because mm -hmm. uh, i didn't you know as for me it was especially wonderful because he was so smart and he could learn anything from reading a book this was the first thing that seemed to stump him mm -hmm. and i was like oh this is so fun to tease him about <laughs> um but he did eventually get it um but you know it definitely is was one of the harder things he had to learn himself uh, yeah. so he did eventually get it and he um built us stock trading algorithm that he said showed a reasonable degree of predictability and then he got so excited about it and he was not someone who spoke much or laughed and he did laugh a lot but he was kind of like giggling as he spoke about his program <laughs> <laughs> so that's how i knew this must be really good yeah yeah um 
so that that was very memorable and we took a lot of really good trips that year you know also so that was great like we we took the kids to the caribbean and went on this really cool like um what was it like a cruise you know Mm -hmm. which we'd never done before but it was great because the kids could just take off and do whatever the heck they wanted so the kids ran wild we didn't even see them half the trip it was like me back at the room at you know sunset and whatever um so they'd be up in the morning off at the pool doing whatever they did and brian and i would just hang out you know and then when it was days for excursions it was like kids had learned to swim so you know we were out um gosh the boys must have been nine and eleven at the time (laughs) we got on this cool catamaran cruise with snorkeling and the boys dive off and just take off with all the adults snorkeling you know (laughs) super cool so um really just nice to see the kids becoming more independent and and doing stuff with us that was more adult yeah you know so we just did all that had a great time then we went up to dc cruised around dc did this whole trip with his parents i mean we just had a a lot of really good memories that year that's awesome what when did uh, he find out he was going back overseas? Well, we knew we knew the deployment schedule was about every you know six to nine months. Um, you know he'd get back and then he, I think it was like six, yeah, it was about it was like a six month rotation. So yeah, we knew by the time he got back that he'd be leaving around August. Yeah, yeah. So then he took off in August. Um, what mm-hmm. do you what do you remember about those moments and? and being with them before he took off on that last trip. I remember there was a moment when I was, we had uh, remodeled the downstairs portion of our house and Brian had built this customized closet for me. I said, yeah, I want this walk-in closet that like has all this like custom shelving. I mean, we can't afford it. We can't afford anything, you know, but you know, my dream. So he buys these like, you know, basically how to do carpentry for dummies things. (laughs) And next thing you know, he's built me this beautiful custom um, closet that looks like a, like a boutique when you walk in and I'm like, this is awesome. Let's get our stuff in here. And he goes, this is for you. He's like, fill it, make it look however you want he goes if my stuff doesn't fit whatever i'm never here anyway he goes this is your closet wow yeah and i remember just like being so blown away by that that i was following him around the house and it reminded me of like when i was a little girl and i was just so like dazzled by my dad you know and i'm looking at brian and i'm thinking how is this possible god like this is just like i it's been 12 years we've been married and this is too good like this, he's just such an incredible human being, and I am so lucky that we still like each other this much. Mm-hmm. We'll love each other, yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I mean, I think that's really what it was. It wasn't like love, you know. It, it was just we really respected and liked each other as, as human beings. That's cool. And so, I and that scared me a little. I was like, it is so good, you know. Like, yeah. what if it like this is as good as it gets, and this is the pinnacle, and either it gets worse from here or something happens. Do you, do you think experiencing your first pain point in life, one of your first major pain points and losing your father kind of set that up for you mentally? Oh yeah. Where you thought that you had oh, lost yeah. your father before that, right? Yeah. How many years before? My dad died in 2010. And how old was he? He was 53. What do you remember about that? And, how Brian handled that with you. 
Brian was at basic training. Oh, wow. So I handled that alone. Oh, geez. And uh, yeah, that was that was really hard. I was living with my parents at the time because Brian was a basic. And so I thought, oh, I'll take the kids. They'll spend some time with my parents and really get to know them before we take off on this wild, you know, military ride and, and probably to the other side of the country. And uh, it was February 13th. Everybody's out at the desert. I was back home watching all the kids and I got a call that my dad had just dropped out of a heart attack in the middle of the desert out riding motorcycles. How how hard was that? You know, your your daddy's girl mm-hmm. you cared a lot about your father. Everybody cares about their fathers, of course, in some way, but you had a special relationship with him. How hard was that on you? That was unbelievable. I mean, it's even now, you know, there's songs. He always, you know, he named me after the, um, the Beatles, or, yeah, the Beatles song. Uh, so, you know, Mich- Michelle Mabel or whatever. Mm-hmm. So anytime I hear certain songs, it just, you know, and he's a big surfer from, you know, 70s. So any um, Beach Boys song, and it's so stupid, but, you know, like (laughs) some of those songs would come on and he used to whistle and sing them. And it's like, I can't take that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, when that happened, you know, my my oldest son, Zeke, was just obsessed with him. And so every day, you know, he'd wake up and scream for his papa and... uh, we had to leave my mom's house because she couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, and so I moved them into a place in town. I couldn't, it was an odd time because I, I couldn't, I couldn't leave yet because I needed my family to get through that. Yeah. And I felt like I was abandoning them, but also that I needed that support. And I also had nowhere else to go yet because Brian hadn't been assigned, you know, we, we hadn't been assigned our duty station. Yeah. So it was a very tough time. And probably hard to get any support from Brian, who's a very supportive guy. Yeah. Do you remember conversations with him after your father died? He Well, he hardly had a phone. Yeah. So it really wasn't wasn't plausible. We, we would talk a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, it is with, with yeah, it just... There wasn't much talking. Mm. Um, and even, you know, for my dad's funeral, he came home for, what, like a day and then left. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, at the time, Zeke was three and he would have these, yeah, I want to say two and a half, three, and he would have these two-hour tantrums, you know, mult- like 10, 15 times a day. And Isaac was 18 months old, maybe. Mm. And so dealing with that, where I've got one kid who's basically a toddler and one kid who's just off the rails all the time, just screaming and coming unhinged. There were nights where, I mean, I would just sit in front of their door. I would lock them in their room to try and get them to go to bed. And they're both screaming. And I'm just sitting there with my glass of wine crying and thinking, and I wake up in the morning having slept there. And they'd fallen asleep, I guess, at some point, and so would I. Mm. It was literally just survival. Did you feel like you were failing? No, felt no. I didn't. I, I don't think I had the ability to process that at that point. I just all I could think of is one day, this will be over. This yeah. will stop. Yeah. So fast forward and to, to Brian's trip. Uh, overseas what was your understanding of this deployment and what it was what it was going to be I mean it was a typical 
you know, the area wasn't necessarily dangerous. There were dangerous areas in Niger, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't a dangerous mission. Their main goal was to go on kind of routine patrols and train the partner force. You, Mm -hmm. You know, they do the by, with, and through missions, pretty standard. Um, I mean, yeah, any Green Beret team can go out and do more complicated missions, um, but generally they're just, they are literally there to train. You know, Brian and I talked about it and it was, you know, the safest place I can be is Niger. Yeah. When, when, what was the last time that you guys talked? Um, right before he went out on the last, um, the last, the last mission. What what do you remember about that conversation? He was calling me from the office, and whenever he called me from the office, he would tell me, and that meant that you know the other men were in the room, so he's not he's not talking to me. I'm yeah. talking to him. Yeah. And um, he just hey, you know, just wanted to talk to you guys. I haven't heard from you. Basically, his way of saying I miss you. Tell me what's going on. I can't talk right now. Mm-hmm. So I just basically monologued. You know, did this today? Did you know? typical lame like drove down the road somebody cut me off so dumb (laughs) you know (laughs) i mean who knows i just remember thinking it was stupid i probably whined to him about something really lame and um yeah that was about it just kind of wrote him through the list of like this is what we did today this is what the kids did is where we're at and this is all the stupid things that went down you know ramsey street was a mess again you know a bunch of ghetto people (laughs) hanging out and you know (laughs) the usual usual ramsey yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't believe what happened at walmart no you would (laughs) um (laughs) yeah so it was stuff like that and brian um basically told me like Hey, you know, my phone's not working. That's why I'm calling you on this phone. We're doing, you know, another patrol up to the Mali border. Hate going there. It's super dangerous. But whatever. They're making us do another stupid mission type thing. Like, we just got back from one. We really shouldn't be going out on this thing. But whatever. He goes, I got to go. We got to finish putting this thing together. And, and like, see ya. Love yeah. you. Bye. Yeah. Did Did you have a bad feeling? about that trip did you feel something leading into that not okay not specifically that mission yeah when he left for that deployment yeah 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 and it had been going on a while Mm. um the minute he left for that mission it seemed like i was constantly looking at my window expecting to see men in uniform and i I didn't know why that Mm. had never happened before i just It's like I was expecting it. And I remember one day, Isaac, I don't remember if he had woken, if it was right when he woke up or right when he got home from school. I just remember it being dark and he, and he came in and he goes, dad's not coming home this time, is he? And I I just, it took me totally off guard um, because I had been thinking that I think more subconsciously than anything. Um, I think sometimes you don't admit things to yourself that you're feeling because you feel like if you admit it, then it, it comes to pass. Yeah. And so I told him, oh, no, no, that's not true. And I remember thinking I'm lying to him right now. Oh, boy. And I said that, you know, we just need to pray. And if we just pray, he'll come, you know, oh, he'll come home. Yeah. And so we did. We started praying every night. And yeah. So October 4th, 2017. Uh, you guys go out and 
what what happened after that? What transpired? Uh, don't you don't need to specifically talk about the mission mm-hmm. right now, but 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 what happened and and what did you find out? Well, they they left early on the third on their first mission. Mm-hmm. Um, by the fourth, they were on a whole separate mission, but still, I mean, hadn't been back to their base, and they were ambushed by ISIS militants um, outside the village of Tongo Tongo, and my husband was killed, including, you know, to include Dustin Wright, David Johnson, Jeremiah Johnson, and then five Nigerian mm. um, partner force soldiers. How did you find out? Um, a news flash. My, me- my uh, mother-in-law called me, said she'd seen a news flash come over her phone. And she said, you know, did you see that? There were um, there was an American convoy that was attacked near the Mali border, the Mo- the border with Mali and Niger. Mm. And I said, oh, Brian, Brian's out there. That's his unit. He's mm. dead. And uh, she said, oh, we don't know that. And but I I knew, mm. I I couldn't. I mean, I wasn't going to say that to her. I just said, yeah, you're right. We'll wait. We'll pray. But what yeah. happened after that? Um, I I made some phone calls, called other women whose husbands were on the team, and one of them had heard from her husband. And that's when I was I knew first. I mean, I I knew the whole time, but you know, there it was just more things were confirming it. And then you know, chaplains came to the door. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? Um, had you been preparing mentally for that? Yeah, I remember I'd gone downstairs and I'd sat in my room. I was waiting for the car to pull up because I decided they were coming and I was trying to process in my room how I was going to, um, what I was going to say to them when they got there <laughs> Yeah, and how I was going to act, try to act surprised because mm-hmm. for some reason I felt like I should pretend to not know. Um, and I heard the door shut. I heard him pull up to the curb and I heard the door shut. So I walked over to my door and sat there and waited for them to knock. And, uh, when they did, I thought, okay, no big deal. I'll open it and they'll say it. I already know that's the worst part. But when they said those words, there's something about the words. And, uh, I backed away from them and my whole body started shaking and I, you know, I, yeah, I I think I just went into shock. I stared at the wall for the next, you know, two days. Yeah. And just drank a lot of water. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. It's mm. all I remember. Wow. So what did you come to find out about that mission and, and, and what were you told initially? Initially, um, I was told by um, the third group commander. He stopped by my house and he told me that the men were on a routine patrol and were not expected to encounter enemy forces when they were ambushed. Was that the truth? No. So already you were lied to? Yes. And that was, I don't know. Did you know you were lied to? Did you feel that you were lied to? No. You know, I think from the beginning, you don't know what to believe and you're hoping 
that everyone is being honest. You you expect that. Mm-hmm. You expect honesty. Why would they lie about how your husband died? Yeah. Yeah. You would hope for better, for sure. Yeah. Did you go out to Dover? You know, I didn't. Mm. That was interesting. They, um, because the incident instantly was so public. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody was hearing about this. Oh, everybody. yeah. It happened. I mean, obviously, that we got the news flash before we got the knock. So I think I heard about it October 5th or 6th. Yeah. So they brought the bodies home that night. Um, the, the minute the incident happened, they dropped the injured men in Germany. Like they literally packed up the plane with the bodies, put the injured in the front, dropped the injured off it in Germany, and then flew the bodies back home. I mean, it was just that night that passed. So, um, what had happened was I got the knock at nine o'clock at night and my kids were already asleep. Mm. And in my mind, you don't wake your kids up and tell them their dad's dead. Yeah. So I decided um, I was going to let them go to school. My whole family's West Coast. Brian's family's West Coast. And I thought, I don't want my kids. I want my... What I wanted was I wanted my kids to see that they had lots of support and family when I broke them the news. Yeah. You know, I needed more than one one set of arms to hold them. Yeah. And so I decided Brian's dad would be getting there first. And um, so as long as he was there, I could tell them. So I let the kids go to school and have one more really good day. And I just straight up lied to him. Like, hey, great day, guys. So excited. Let's go to school. You know, and um, took him to school. Told the school, like, no mention of this. This is what's going on, and this is what's going to happen at the end of the day. Prepare their work. They're going to be missing for a while. And at the end of the day, me and Grandpa picked them up and took them out to a park. Yeah. Yeah. How How difficult was that, telling your sons? Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, not something I would wish on anyone. Yeah. And, and how was it to have Henry there with you? It was interesting, um, (laughs) because... You're doing the hardest thing in the world. And you're making someone who's just been through something harder than what you've been through go help you. Yeah. Because, I mean, I hadn't lost my kid. And it was the worst thing I've ever had to do. And I was making, I was making my father-in-law tell, you know, go with me to tell his grandsons. Yeah. What had happened to their dad. Um... But that that was why we didn't go to Dover. Um, I would have had to have gotten on a plane, I think, around noon to go to Dover and be there by 2. And my kids got out of school at 2. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to have to have somebody else tell my kids that their dad was dead or that mom's out picking, you know, greeting his body. Yeah. I didn't think that was acceptable. How did your sons take it? 
<laughs> Not well. Yeah. No. No, we um I took him out to a park and you know gathered him around and it, it was horrible. They thought grandpa was there to do something fun, take him out to a park, we're here to play. And uh it's just, you know, remember how we talked about praying for dad, you know, well his his friends and him, you know. Yeah. They they were attacked and some of them, you know, some of them made it. Some of them were injured and some were killed and you know, you sorry, your dad your dad didn't make it. Your dad was killed and, and they're asking questions like, Oh, what maybe he's just halfway dead and they're shrieking at you and it it's just it's not you know, they're it's not something kids can process. It's just it it takes the magic out of life. Yeah. What what are the days like after that? And you know, and and having Henry obviously, you know, Henry came in and moved with moved in with you. What was it like after that? Was that difficult? Yeah. It I was I mean, obviously uh, difficult, but what was that like? It's it's this weird quiet heavy thing Mm -hmm. everyone just you know when we talk the few times we're talking something always gets sad and and then it gets silent and you know just tears and just it's this it's this blur Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's a blur and what was it like after that and kind of learning of what really went on and and how did you guys find that out? How did you guys find out what really occurred on the mission? I mean, was it a lot of time in between? Uh, was it a while before the facts would break down? Um, or, or what was that like? Did you do your own research? Yeah. You know, I think initially, because there were six months between the between um, the incident and I think it was about six or seven months um, between the incident and when we received our brief on the investigation. So the investigation was complete around the end of April, and that's when we received our brief. So um, during that time, it was this odd, like transition from routine patrol from you know 50 fighters attack the team to then I hear somewhere else 200 fighters and then I hear somewhere else 100 fighters so there was a lot of just constantly changing information Mm -hmm. and for me um well and and there were things that they would say oh this happened they went and stayed the night near the Mali border oh this happened you know and this the team, they were a bunch of cowboys. They went rogue. Yeah. So I'm hearing things that I'm going, well, that's not possible. And, you know, that's ridiculous. So, you know, Captain Perzini, you know, the, the team captain, he's, you know, a terrible leader, which wasn't what I'd heard from my husband at all. My husband had a tremendous amount of respect for the man. Um, and my husband wasn't quick to respect people. Yeah. So that spoke volumes to me. So when I was hearing things coming out in the media, I just thought, this is so odd. But then I would hear things in the media too, you know, that I knew were inaccurate. And, you know, even things about my husband that were inaccurate. And so I thought, well, you know, if they can't even get basic facts right, then, you know, I'm not going to listen to them about Perzini or about, 
any of the rest of this stuff. I'm going to trust in AFRICOM and the investigators to bring us the truth because of course they're going to do that. Why wouldn't they? Right. Um, by the end of the brief, um, because one big point was con ops. And by the end of the brief, they couldn't really, when I questioned them extensively on con ops, they couldn't answer me. Um, without us by the end, it was just basically the attitude of, Hey, just trust us, Mrs. Black. Mm. And they had also, that there were some points where it was clear there was a lawyer getting involved in answering questions, like stepping in and speaking over the commanding general, uh, or not the general who had run the investigation and was now briefing us. The lawyer would step in and answer for him. And to me, those things were all signaling like, hey, something's off here. If yeah. I've got a lawyer stepping up to to delicately state something. Yeah. Um. So that didn't sit right with me. And um. And they were just slightly disrespectful a few times, and it, and it kind of caught me off guard. Hmm. So I finally was like, you know, I think I'm going to let this go. I'm sure the team is not going to get in trouble for anything. I'm sure that, you know, this isn't that bad. I'm sure we're not being directly lied to. Right. You want to believe all of that, you know? And, and so for me, it was like, let it go, let it go, be at peace. Don't make a big deal. Um, but there's something about your husband sacrificing his life and an organization that would choose to disrespect him personally yeah. and dishonor that. Um, and when, I, when General Waldhauser got on TV to do his press briefing, he stated that you know, all teams on the on the continent of Africa are performing well, but this team is not indicative of what's, what special operators do. Hmm. And, Jeez. yeah, and in that moment, I mean, he just completely annihilated, you know, dishonored and disrespected every man, you know, on that team. I mean, my husband and everyone who fought and died alongside him. Hmm. And in doing so, you dishonor and disrespect the families. Yeah. You know, it, it was entirely incorrect, and I knew it. I knew a lot of what I was being told didn't sit right. Yeah. And and when he said that, I thought, you know what? He's now transitioned from attacking Captain Perazzini and a few other guys on the team to also including my husband and the men who died. And, and that alone, not only did it make me angry, but it made me realize this guy can't be trusted. Like, I don't believe anything he's telling me. Yeah. I remember uh, it was the night, I think it was probably like October 10th, 11th, somewhere around that time frame, and I got a message from one of my buddies uh, working the desk for one of these internet uh, groups, you know, forums, uh, military, special operations, and he sent me a, he sent me a video, a link, and he said, hey man, this is, you know, Think about watching this. I'm not telling you to or not, uh, but it, it's going to make you irate. And I, and he said, you know, think about it though for a minute. And um, it took a minute because I I'd known what had happened and I or I'd heard what had happened, and it kind of shocked me, uh, you know, to hear what I was hearing about these Green Berets being attacked uh, in Africa. Obviously, I knew there was a lot of problems with insurgencies. Um, and, you know, borders crossed, invisible bridge uh, of jihad, you know, from one area to another. 
and I knew that the French troops were battling it out in Mali and you know in and around Niger and uh but but I didn't know how bad some of these areas had become. And so he sent me the video and I, I sat on it for a little while and the next night I started watching and I had to keep pausing because, you know, I was thinking, Oh dear God, I don't want to watch this, like I don't want to see this. But what I saw in the video, and of course, you know, there's a whole other discussion around that video getting released. Uh, it's a propaganda piece uh, for for ISIS. I saw uh, courage. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you this 100%, Michelle, I'm being 100% truthful with, with you right now. I saw courage. I saw honor. I saw special operations members working their best in an unbelievably difficult situation, doing their best. And honestly, in those moments, those men became superhuman to me in what I saw in that video. Not, not, didn't feel a sense of, I felt angry, but I felt the sense of, wow, these men are incredible. The movement and knowing they're surrounded and the way that they move and the way your husband moved and you know, and all those incredible guys that were there watching it though, uh, you know, towards the end, obviously seeing what I saw towards the end and I wouldn't suggest anybody going and watching that video. Uh, but what I saw was ultimately devastating, but I, I was, an, I felt a sense of admiration and I thought, wow, this is, you know, an Alamo situation and these men battled it out and did all they could. Mm-hmm. What was your feeling? Because the comments that I saw under this video and what I was looking at, guys were irate. Guys were mad that this was even released. Right. What was your feeling when that video came out? Well, first of all, before the video, I want to just jump back. Mm -hmm. From the minute I found out about what happened, because I knew my husband... Um, I, I had decided and I told my father-in-law this, I said, he did something on purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, I don't know what he did, but he chose this. He did something. He chose this for a reason. So there was some reason that he, he, he died. He didn't like to, in my mind, he didn't accidentally get shot. He, I, I told Henry, I said, either the, and this was before I knew that David had we knew the sequence of events. I just knew that the David was missing. And so while the David was still missing and we already knew that Brian was dead, I said, maybe something happened to the David and Brian went after him. Mm-hmm. I said, because if something happened to the David, Brian would kill the, you know, like he would lose his mind. Mm-hmm. He would go after him because I knew they were friends. Yeah. And, um, Brian saw him as a little brother and I, and that's, that was my first thought. Brian was helping him train and get ready for SFAS, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. And so I thought maybe maybe that's what it was. Maybe Brian went after him. And all I knew was Brian was the kind of person who always was, you know, running numbers in his head. He, in his head. He knew the odds. He he knew the probability. So I thought at some point he made a decision knowing full well he would probably die. But he knew that me, um, I was good. I, I could handle being home with the kids. And he'd made statements like that, you know, like. I never worry leaving. 
I never worry any, you know, like it's so nice because I know no matter what, you and the kids are good all the time. Like you don't need me. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I thought if someone was in trouble, Brian handled it because he knew I'd be fine. Yeah. And so um, when the video came out, I mean, yeah, seeing the sequence of sequence of events, mm-hmm. I went, well, there you go. Yeah, that was a choice he made. I knew it. You know, he stepped out. He was doing, you know, he was taking care of things, helping his friends in the other trucks get out of there. Yeah. Um, that's what I saw. And I knew like instantly, okay, yeah, that's proof. But at the same time, for me, the video, and I think it was, I think special operators get this, but, you know, Joe Public doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't a cool video of, you know, guys shooting and battling. and uh, These are fathers dying. Yeah, yeah. And they have children out there who are going to see this. Mm-hmm. This, you know, my mother-in-law is going to see her child die on national TV. That is every special operator's nightmare. Yeah. To me, this is terror at its finest. And the the American public is participating in it. Yeah. They're condoning it. Yeah. And, you know, we don't want to watch planes fly into towers. We That makes us mad. And yet we're going to put this out. Yeah. And, you know, and it is literally a terrorist propaganda video and it's showing the death of American soldiers. And then we're going to comment on, you know, how they were dumb and didn't get out of there. Yeah. And it just, to me, it was, it was so unacceptable. It was, yeah, I I was pretty irate. Yeah. Were were there calls made? Were there talks, discussions after this video got released? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wrote a letter, actually. Um, and sent it to the White House. And I was told it was read before the Joint Chiefs of Staff just discussing the fact that um, it was uh, it was unacceptable mm-hmm. that they literally released a terrorist propaganda video that my kids could have access on their computers at school to. Yeah. And I said, it's on YouTube. It is, you know, whatever. And, you know, that CBS can put that out like do we not have laws that cover this do we not have decency as a country anymore you know this is unacceptable and i think i stated in the letter you know we are now essentially prisoners in our own home because i am trying to protect my kids from seeing things that that should have never been possible for them to see yeah how how long did it take you before you watched it I watched it when I wrote my book. Yeah. I refused to before that. Yeah. I refused to condone like a piece of terrorist propaganda being put out. How how difficult was that for you to watch? <sighs> By then had you, you know, obviously you weren't calm about it because you never will be and how can you mm-hmm. be? By then, I was so deep into the process of breaking down analytically what had happened on the ground that I was able, honestly, to separate myself out emotionally from it, fortunately, mm-hmm. um, because I was seeing it more as, let's break down the movements, let's see where these guys are moving, and I was not looking at faces, I was looking at body movements. Yeah. And that helped. Yeah. And I already knew the ending. Yeah. Um. And yeah. what was what was your decision after that or, or during that period before? What was your decision to write the book? Well, why did that 
take place? Why did you decide? I remember when we first started having our discussions and you were telling me you're going to ride it. I was like, oh, yeah, she's going to ride it for sure. Yeah. She's going to do it. <laughs> Michelle yeah. will do it. Because, <laughs> you know, I had met you in a time that was really rough. Uh, you know, I saw the emotion. I saw what you were going through with the kids. Difficult, uh, to say the least. Yeah. You know, we're in beautiful thing, Wyoming, and you're, you know, you're probably having a hard time even enjoying the trip, uh, because of all that you've got going on mentally. I saw it. I mean, I told Blake, I said, she's crushed, man. She is crushed. I know she's going to come back from this, but seeing it that close to when it actually occurred was really a gut punch for me, uh, and a gut punch for Blake. And what, what, what was the decision to write the book? The day General Waldhauser made those comments on national TV was the day that I was like, this this will not stand. This yeah. level of injustice and dishonor to our troops, to my husband. Yeah. Like, those heroes who sacrifice for our country should never have somebody who is a general, a commander, you know, this this at this high of a level, dishonor them yeah. in such a way. And you decided to get from the get-go, pretty much get the guys involved, right? That was was that yeah. uh, principal thought and foundation for the book, knowing that you were going to get the guys involved. Oh yeah, from the team. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody had had their chance, you know, their opinions voiced, you know, through the media, um, you know, and it became clear to me that this was those at the highest levels essentially had circled the wagons and were making sure that their narrative was you know, out there and, and it was painting these men to be responsible for a situation they had not created. Mm -hmm. They had been sent into against their will. So watching that level of injustice and seeing these generals completely dishonor men who had given their lives, you know, mm -hmm. um, in service to our country, th that to me, there was no other choice. There was one choice and that was write the injustice yeah and i didn't care who i was or who they were like that was my job now so i went to the guys and i just said listen you know there's a million books out there everybody wants to read you guys don't have you know there's always a reporter who wants to write the story and the minute the restrictions are lifted and you guys can start talking again because now the brief is out and they've all you know whitewashed this thing like you're going to have every journalist and whatever and everyone's going to be wanting to write your write your book and I was like why give it to them we've already seen what they do they'll take what you tell them and then they'll they'll take that piece they wrote that isn't quite accurate and they'll just blend them together and make you still look stupid yeah and I was like a whole bunch of half truths yeah, yeah yeah I was like in the end they're going to do what they want with it, with it because you can't trust them yeah and I was like you can trust me shoot Two years down the road, if I don't have a publisher and I have nothing signed, you can tell me not to print it. And I was like, I won't. Yeah. Because I think you guys have been through enough. And I love you guys. And this isn't about money. This isn't about fame. Like, this is about injustice. This is about right and wrong. And I'm the only one who can get away with this. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, you know, I, I just want to tell everybody out there listening who, you know, was on the forums, watching the video, commenting, uh, you know, their own idea of what happened. You know, if you have the moxie to write that comment, if you have the moxie to watch that video, which I did, uh, and comment on a situation that you don't better understand, you better be buying the book. 
you better be reading uh, the stories of these men from the men who were on the ground because that's what real integrity is. These men had great integrity in everything they did. And then you find out, of course, that, you know, they were actually setting up a blocking position, doing what, you know, special operations soldiers should do uh, in a task that is incredibly difficult in a very hostile environment. Um, what was it like writing the book and the experience of meeting these men and, and finally having these discussions? I would say that it was, for me, it was very healing. Um, there's something about when you're going through something so big, but you see so like something so painful and you see pain in other people and you're able to do something that oddly enough helps them or you feel like it helps them. It makes things a little less, less raw, a little less painful. You know, so for me, that was, that was very healing to feel like I could do something to lift um, that heaviness from them. And did you learn a lot from these men? Did you learn a lot about the situation and all so that much. transpired? Yeah. Oh, you know, and after coming out of the, the brief by AFRICOM, there were so many things where I would be speaking with them and it just blew my mind because it was so different than what we'd been told. Yeah. You know, I thought like... You know, we go into the brief, we get this super detailed timeline and all these, you know, just details. And instead, it just felt like this vague story and anything that I asked too, too many questions on, eventually it turned into the just trust us, Miss Black. Mm. What they did was really wrong or just the general feeling of like, oh, well, Perizzini stopped the trucks and... You know, just whatever he did, it was made very clear by tone that what he did was not acceptable. But there was really no explanation behind why it wasn't acceptable and, and why he made the choices he made. Did you get to talk to Captain Perizzini for the book? I did. Yeah. And, and what was that like, finally getting to hear it from the commander? <laughs> I love Mike. Yeah. He's uh, he's incredibly intelligent um, and very but very black and white. So um, it was really neat because he could just line out for me what he what he did and the choices he made and why he made those choices, you know. Yeah. And but he's he's very humble. So it was never like I did this and this was the right decision. It was just I did this because, you know, that that, and that made sense at the time, you know. And so he's giving me the analytical reason why. And what was interesting is later it was the men under his command who would praise him. Hmm. And and that really spoke volumes to me. He's he's incredibly humble, and the men um, under his command just have the utmost respect for him. But they wanted to punish him. Yeah. And they wanted to punish him to make him a scapegoat. Yes. And they tried to punish him, right? Yeah, they did. Multiple times. Yeah. What, what came out of that? He received two rounds of Gomors. The first was permanent, but it was rescinded. The second was went into his temporary file, but again, he fought it and again, it was rescinded. Mm. So then when I think the last ditch effort was when they did awards, he was nominated for a silver star. And in the end, he was, I mean, months after everybody else received theirs, he finally was given an award 
he was just handed something at work and i believe it was a commendation medal with mm-hmm. maybe a c device okay wow what did you find out really occurred on that day what really occurred um they were they had gone down to tillowa on a one day mission they the night before they had been given um, basically Intel saying, Hey, we believe this, you know, high value target is down in the area of Tillowa. Um, the intelligence is good for two hours. And that was the night of October 2nd. Mm. So they go, well, you know, it's going to take us several hours to drive down there. It's going to take us a couple hours to pack up. By the time we get down there, we're well outside the, you know, window for the intelligence. We'll do it anyway. So the team's like, well, we're not, we, you know, they, they argued, pushed back a little and it was like, well, we're going. So we're going. Yeah. So they, they pack, they get all ready to go. And around, I believe 11 o'clock at night, they get a call. So I think it was around two or three hours after the initial call, they get a call again from headquarters just saying, listen, um, instead we're going to send a vehicle from here to go join you on your mission. So it's going to take them until six in the morning to get to your base. And then you guys are going to go down and act on that hour of, you know, <laughs> that mm. intelligence, yeah. which by now it's ridiculous. And all the guys on the team are like, this is stupid. Why are we going down there on intelligence that is, that's already passed really because Welcome it, to the United States army. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so they're like, well, this is dumb, but you know, whatever, like they yeah. want us to go down there. We're, we're just going to go do a sieve mill, like cruising. Like we always do. We know we're not going to find the guy. But we'll make these guys feel comfortable and let us know we're here. We knew that HVT was, you know, he was in town. And, hey, do you have any problems with him? And, you know, we're aware of him. You're you're safe. And if you have any concerns, let us know. So that was kind of the idea behind it. So they cruise down there. And, um, you know, mission's pretty straightforward. He's not there. Surprise, surprise. And um, they pack up and head back towards base. Um. And on their way back towards base, um, they get a call from headquarters again when they're right outside Mangazi. So they're only maybe an hour and a half outside of um, their home base in Wallum. And so now it's, hey, we got another, you know, another piece of intel. Same intel, like same same style of intel, you know, another like SIGINT. So from the same source, whatever, mm-hmm. um, coming from up near the border, we believe he has a campsite up there. We want you to go up to the campsite and clear the campsite and do a capture detain mission. And they're like, listen, we're heading south or we're heading from the south up towards the north, up towards the Mali border. We have an eight truck convoy, slow moving trucks. There's no way we can create a northern blocking position with any element of surprise. And when these slow-moving trucks are on motorcycles, yeah, they'll first of all they'll see us coming, and second of all, <laughs> like even if they didn't see us coming and we caught them by surprise, they're out of there and across the border. We can't cross into Mali. Yeah. So it, there there was no purpose to it. So they said, let us see what we can do because headquarters still wanted them to go ahead. So um, a couple of the guys come up with the idea, Team Arlet, Helleborn unit, um, they have, you know, the necessary equipment to pull this off. They can fly in, be dropped, you know, north of the campsite and walk down. 
and then we can just create a blocking position, you know, yeah. on the southern side. So um, they can just essentially be there as backup. So they come up with this idea, they send it up, and then that's when it involves, you know, um, pe- uh, the commander back at pa- uh, Chad, mm-hmm. and um, as well as the group commander over in Germany. So now everybody's doing VTCs, trying to plan um, that night's mission. But in the meantime, they send the team up to the border, just driving through the night, waiting for the Helleborn unit to meet them up at the border. Mm -hmm. So they are driving. It's about, I believe, a 10 to 12 hour drive. So they're driving up towards the border, um, trying to keep their headlights off, super rough terrain. So they're driving with nods. And they were, it was so rough. They, you know, Mike Perzini was out front walking and directing the vehicles because, you know, they're in those, um, Toyota Hiluxes. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just junk, you know, they're, they're needing to make sure that they don't get stuck in the dirt out there. Right. Um, because then their only option is to get pulled out by the African trucks if that even works out well. Yeah. You know, so they, they can't afford to get stuck. So, um, this is already going bad. Oh, it's going real bad. Yeah. So they're out there for miles beyond the last hut and they're just heading north, hmm. you know, straight towards enemy territory. And, you know, as they head north, um, everybody else is planning the peace with Arlet. So they get up and they're still, I believe, gosh, quite a ways out. But they're kind of at the the first stopping point when they hear that Team Arlet got turned around due to weather. Mm, jeez. And yeah, so they're like, "This is no good. We we already aren't feeling too safe out here. Now we don't have any sort of backup. We don't have any assets. We don't have, you know, any way to create a, a like good blocking position here. Like this is a waste of a mission. So they request to abort." And basically, they're told, no, you need to proceed alone to the Mali border. Oh, jeez. So then, yeah, so then they um, end up proceeding through the night to the to the border alone to clear the campsite. And when they get to the campsite, a couple of motorcycles pop up, and um, or one motorcycle pops up and takes off um, heading north out of the site. Mm. And so... Perzini, and, and it's funny because in the brief we were told, oh... You know, he was very, basically, he sent their only, um, air, their only asset, which was the, um, ISR following the, um, well, we, we actually, they didn't tell us there was a motorcycle. They told us that Perizzini sent their only ISR drone to look at crossings into Mali Mm -hmm. to check for crossings. So it was the men who told me, no, there was a motorcycle was pushed out from under one of the trees started up and took off north which freaked the guys out and they were like we don't want him circling back or doing something and and attacking us later so they sent him off um they sent the isr after him so that's where the isr went which in the end the isr didn't have enough fuel to go back to base with them anyway and they Mm. knew this yeah so um anyway they they finish up clearing the campsite they head back down on their way home, stop into the village of Tongo Tongo to grab some water um, and are uh, stalled. Um, they, they do, the village chief of Tongo Tongo comes out for a talk. They, 
he ends up stalling them for a bit. And then the guys are like, it's getting a little weird. So we need to leave. Yeah. So they leave. And as they leave, fire opens up on them. Mm. Like literally, you know, 15 feet outside the village. I mean, it's right beyond the very last hut. Wow. And yeah, so it kind of goes from there. Um, you know, uh, and there were multiple things that we were told that in the end weren't true. You know, we talked, I'm sure everybody remembers the discussion on Mike Perazzini, you know, stopping the trucks in the kill zone. Um, there were multiple, um, uh, um, like, uh, pictures put up by AFRICOM and, um, you know, you'd see it all over TV where it, where it showed the movement of the trucks and it shows the trucks just stopping. And so the word was that Captain Perzini had stopped the trucks um, because he wanted to get out and do a bold flanking maneuver. Mm-hmm. After interviewing the men, I was told, and this is individually, um, I didn't speak to them together, yeah. um, that the Nigerian trucks were in the lead because they were doing a by, with, and through mission. So according to protocol, you know, the two Nigerian trucks were ahead of the first American truck. And um, when shots began to ring out, they panicked and backed right into the American truck. So the first Nigerian truck backs into um, the American truck one. Then the next Nigerian truck tries to back around both of them, clips the American truck and stops right next to the driver's side door. So now that truck can't move at all. And so the whole convoy comes to a, to a halt. Mm. And um, Mike and everybody piles out. And um, Mike's like, okay, sounds like only a few people shooting. I'm going to grab a couple guys. We're going to run around, do a bold flanking maneuver, see what our enemy situation looks like, take the guys down and be done. Because they assumed it was just a few guys. Yeah. And um, in the meantime, they're... Uh, interpreter jumped from the vehicle and took off. Oh, jeez. So, and he had the radio with him. Oh, boy. So, all communication was now a mess between partner forces. And so, you've got partner forces running around trying to escape the battle. Everyone's running away or driving away, except the Americans. It was a mess. Yeah. And in the meantime, Mike runs around and realizes, like, there are more terrorists flooding in all at once. And they're um, beginning to amass yeah. um, and try to outflank us on the road and trap us on the road. Mm. So he came running back and essentially he saved everybody by saying, we need to get out of here because I saw that we are being, we're going to be overrun. Yeah. And so they began to move. And um, it, according to everything I read, learned Whatever it looked like, Brian, Dustin, and Jeremiah decided they were going to um, basically fire had gotten so intense, they realized like we need to create a blocking position and um, basically keep the enemy at bay so that the rest of the trucks can escape. Yeah, so they stopped. Wow. So they began rolling forward initially, but they weren't in their vehicle, they were walking next to it, and then they stopped the vehicle. Um, in a good blocking position, began firing, and then it wasn't long before they were overrun and killed. Mm. 
the the other guys make it out of there. They did. Yes. Yeah. How yeah. did they, how did they escape? Um so they they did two 300 meter bounds. According to Africom, the the men had actually done one large 700 meter bound, just blew out of there and didn't stop and look back. Um according to everyone I interviewed, they did two 300 meter bounds and at the first 300 meters they looked back and realized nobody was there. Uh, the last vehicle was not there. So two guys ran back. At the 700-meter mark, um, they sent two more guys back. Mm. So there were four guys back looking for the missing truck. And in the meantime, um, once Brian, uh, Dustin, and Jeremiah were killed, the um, enemy forces began circling once again towards the 700-meter mark. And then came out and came at them full force on that end of the road and drove them back into the forest. Mm. And those guys were able to maintain their position until close air support came in. They were. Yeah. yeah. Well, and initially they they turned, they flipped the vehicles around to head, you know, back into um, back into the forest essentially mm-hmm. to hide and when they did that that's when the david's vehicle disappeared and nobody's really quite sure what you know why yeah um they just know they everyone was supposed to be following each other and when they looked back he wasn't there anymore mm. so so who were the guys that survived that obviously the captain and who else um i believe there were seven total so there were um, Captain Perazzini, Brent Bartels, Ondo, Hansen, Smith, um, Brooks. I'm trying to think of who else. Oh, and there was a Jido analyst, Chester. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then those guys survived. Yes. Yeah. And you talked to those guys. I do. For the book. What, what were the days like and after that and the, the recovery for you? Um what has it been like since raising these two boys on your own and and raising them right, teaching them, you know, <laughs> values, um, but 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 watching them, you know, without their father, what is what has that been like for you? Really hard, but you know, not not everybody gets both parents, yeah. so sometimes I I just look at it as, hey, this is a challenge, another challenge that I get to take on and prove that I can do. So it's kind of fun in many ways. I mean, it's heartbreaking because, you know, of course it would be better if Brian was here and I would much rather that. And that part's really hard. It's hard when I see my kids and it's, oh my gosh, I just saw Brian in him. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Zeke looks so much like him. We're out skiing on the slopes and I look at Zeke and I mean, it takes me a long time to fully accept that that's not Brian right in front of me. And that's that's a really, I don't know how to explain that feeling. Yeah. It, it's it's heartbreaking and wonderful and, and I hate it and I love it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to be mom and dad. Yeah. So it means having those conversations that Brian would be having with them. So sometimes it's I call my brothers and I say, hey, tell me what teenage boys go through. And then I have that ugly conversation mm-hmm. with my teenage boys. Mm-hmm. You know, if this was your son, what would you be telling him? 
all right, well then, guess who's having that conversation with a mom? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, you like looking at that? Whoa, I'm going to sit next to you and look at that with you. How's that going to make you feel, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, so it's just one of those things that you're like, well, you know, you've, you've been through, you've faced so many challenges, and they'll, they'll be fine. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll be good. They've come from good stock. They're smart kids. They're brave. They've um, got some incredible family around them. They do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've got me. So, you know, they're, they're good. <laughs> they're good. <laughs> yeah. well, what has the move been like to Washington? When I was meeting you, you know, you were in that kind of transition mode of, you know, obviously going through one of the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching moments of your life, something you wouldn't want anybody to have to go through. Uh, yeah. But sadly enough, more will go through this. Yeah, they will. It, it's it's the truth in the future, and that part is it's hard to fathom. Mm. Uh, but I remember covering, you know, starting this project a few years back, and saying that to some of the Gold Star parents I met. It's heartbreaking to me to know that more will go through, and you had yet to go through. Yeah, when I was having some of those talks, that part is tough. I, I, I tell everybody this in every project and Gold Star, and this is by far the most difficult work we do. Um, I tell everybody this. I would give anything to not have to sit here and be with you. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the toughest parts of this work. For you in moving forward, I mean, what's the advice to to those that are going through it or will go through it in the future? as far as raising your children by yourself and and, and handling that and picking up the pieces. Gosh, that's hard. Yeah. Um, And I know it's different for everyone, but. It is, you know, because. (sighs) Yeah. um, I think first and foremost, you know, like it gets better. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's always hard. You know, you always remember them and you always wish that that they were still there, that nothing had changed. But, you know, we don't always get what we want, clearly. Yeah. Um. So, make them up, you know, like make the best of it that you can. Um, and, you know, there's there's going to be hard days, yeah. But just, you know, you, you always have to remember that, like there's always good days, you know, it's like, you know, there's always a, you know, after the rain, you know, the sun always <laughs> comes out yeah. and that sun's going to come out, you know, and, and there's going to be a whole summer soon and your best days aren't behind you. That's been a huge thing for me is thinking like after Brian died, like that's it, man, you know, all, all my best days are behind me. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I've had these unbelievably surreal like just life like changing mind blowingly great incredible days like i might have had my best day after he died and i could have never even believed that that was possible yeah. before he died and sometimes like i feel almost guilty for that yeah, but yeah. there's also this gratitude because in some ways the ability to recognize that came through the sacrifice he made and mm. that's very humbling and I was going to say that my friend Nicole Chick, uh, Carter's wife, you know, after he took his own life, she said, you know, people would make me feel almost uh, guilty 
for having good days. She said, but don't ever let people make you feel guilty for that. No. Don't ever let people make you feel guilty for having true joy and finding joy again. Because you need that. Oh, yeah. You need that. You need to be able to spread that to your children as well, right? Yeah. To be able to carry on. Well, Um, and honestly, like, life is awesome. Life mm -hmm. is great. And there's so many, like, incredible and exciting and, you know, things to do and um, experience. And, gosh, your husband died and and you're not going to take your kids out and take advantage of that and let them see that, you know. there's been moments since Brian died and I'm so grateful that I got to live to do these things with my kids and that we did do them, you know, like taking them up to the top of the mountain this year on our skis and my kids are blowing their minds and they're getting that adrenaline rush from skiing too fast and crashing too hard. And, (laughs) you know, like there's just, there's something about that where you're really learning to just save our life and, and, you know, really live it hard. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what we all should be doing. And sometimes facing, you know, losing somebody makes you realize, like, I really need to get after it every day. Yeah. You know. How how helpful have these two boys been in your healing? So helpful. We yeah. laugh so much. And, and, and it helps me, you know, process my own grief as I watch them and I worry about things and I'm like, okay, how do I help them figure out how to deal with that? You know, so things where I'm, all right, you know, I want you to sit down and write a letter to your dad. I mean, I heard about all this, you know, that first year, but that first year I was like, yeah, you can take that advice and, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> but go um, on and shove it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now it's like, all right, you know, sitting down and, and really thinking through like, all right, what do they need to do? What have they not done? And and then thinking, wait a minute, I didn't do that either. Here I am trying to give them some advice and maybe I ought to write that down. Yeah. Tell them what I need them to hear, you know. And and so it's just, I think we all help each other. And then there's things where I see my kids being strong for me and and that, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's really an incredible process. It's painful, yeah. you know, but it's, it makes you a better human being. Oh, absolutely. And I've seen it in you. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty awesome. These no, days. You're pretty cool. If you met me before, you'd be like, wow. Who, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I did, but I did meet you before and I, and I saw the grief and I saw the pain and yeah. I saw those dark moments. And so to come, you know, and experience and speak with you, uh, you know, what has it been three and a half years or whatever it's been since yeah. we last saw each other to see the growth in you and to see you speak on these things so ably and so profoundly and with such strength and courage, it helps fill me up. It helps my fuel uh, in what I do and watching the growth because I, I knew you'd be up fine, as fine as could be. But to watch you and actually be in the space with you speak on these things and to watch you author this book and grow and learn and teach your children and watch your children's growth, your sons growing up into two able-bodied young men uh, is absolutely incredible. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to be in company with you, to be speaking to you. Well, the really? feeling is mutual. So. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> My parents don't even say that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah you're not too bad. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go too far, but you're yeah, not too yeah. bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Michelle, it's been an incredible 
experience being out here the past few days with you, photographing you uh, and, and getting to tell your story and being here in this space with you. What about the book? When does it come out? Um, what, what are we looking at date wise? Oh, it's out. It released May 4th. Oh, that's right. You're not on the pre-order list I'm anymore. I'm not. Oh, you can buy yeah. it See, I just thought want. I got a special privilege. I thought you were no. just handing me the book. Hey, here it is before. Yeah, I wasn't being honest before. I wanted you to feel special. <laughs> now I got a signed copy now. I now know. I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. I'm really enjoying it. Oh. Uh, yeah. What has that been like for you on these uh, speaking about it and, and talking? Do you get tired of it? Do you... Is it is it tough some days where you feel like ah, I don't know I just I'm, you know I want to move on. I don't think so because when you when you pour so much into something, mm-hmm. it's like all I've wanted since the day this happened, since the day I interviewed the guys and figured out the truth, is I just wanted to go out there and tell everybody like, listen, this is the truth. Yeah. And so to have it out there and to get to, to share that with everyone. And to tell them, like, Mike Parazzini, he's a hero. Yeah. You know. That's pretty cool. These men are incredible. Don't believe what you were told. Yeah. You know, my husband's a hero. Like, they they were doing exactly what special operators should do. Um, I can talk about that all day, every day. So, I'm, I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a good time. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, wh- where do people get the book? Where do they go to get it? Everywhere, yeah, Amazon, everywhere. you know, Audible, Barnes and, um, Noble. Barnes and Noble, book, yeah, um, books a million, Walmart, Target, yeah, yeah, anywhere you want to find it. Well, that's incredible. And wow, when I was looking at you and you were telling me you were going to publish a book, and you publish a book, and with one of the best publishers in the world, yeah. right? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was very fortunate. How did that come about? Um, a little bit of gold dust yeah yeah Yeah. you know i was really fortunate i you know all you need is the right agent and and people to you know just one person who believes that you can do it Mm -hmm. will make all the difference in the world and i really met an incredible um well i had a lot of help along the way too you know Uh, there were so many people who it's like oh you know you're publishing a book let me see who i can talk to let me hook you in with this person let me you know so there was a lot of just people who helped me network i didn't know how to network i mean you know housewife you know i knew how to knit so (laughs) (laughs) i could make a mean guacamole but you know as far as network went uh you know so there was a huge learning curve and there were a lot of people who helped me figure that out. Mm. And that was great. You know, and in the end I found just the right agent who believed in me and just helped me learn so much about the writing world Mm. and introduced me to um, who would eventually become my publisher. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, what a story. And uh, I'm glad to be here in this space with you. I feel very honored like I said, and to see you and your growth and all that you've gone through. And now you have a book, Sacrifice. Everybody pick that up uh, when you get a chance. It's everywhere. I've got a signed copy. I feel very privileged, um, even if it's not the pre- <laughs> it's not the pre-order <laughs> copy. It's I still feel incredibly special. I'm going to be reading more of it tonight. So thank you for having me, uh, Michelle, and really appreciate all that you're doing and all that you will do. Well, thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Yeah, my, I enjoyed it as well. Uh, for those of you listening uh, and you know, finding yourself inspired by this, first of all, buy the book, pick up the book. Um, 
follow along with Michelle's story. We'll provide all appropriate links to social media. And uh, we very much appreciate you listening. Uh, this These stories have to get out there. Uh, these stories of courage and honor um, and also betrayal, uh, lies, uh, but but finding the light and finding the truth through that, through one incredible gold star wife, Michelle Black. Uh, tremendous. Just incredible. So for those of you listening, uh, definitely buy the book. Check out Michelle on social media. Uh, check out her website. We'll provide all the links. Uh, but most of all, don't forget... Our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.